You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. I looked at the picture. Welcome to the Boss Hog of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 246 of East Central Angeles Favorite Podcast. I'm Jeremiah Morrill. Uh, to do, today we are rejoined by executive video producer emeritus Chris Staten. You guys may remember him as Chris Guffey. Hello, hello. Welcome back, man. Uh, on my left, we have uh, our... Uh, you're a rotating member of the cast. You're on the website, Jesse. Welcome back. Hello. You're, uh, you're sitting in for Dakota, who's trying to win Father of the Year. Well, uh, yeah. As a Zach, they're competing. Uh, I don't, we're going to have to have some sort of an award uh, to de- determine who, was the, uh, who had the better spring break after the, when they return. Sure. All right. Yeah, I don't have anything. I was just like, how do you determine that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You can spend the whole episode figuring it out, though. Uh, today's episode, we're going to be talking. Uh, we're going to extend our candidate series, uh, and we're going to be talking to uh, Michael Mahoney and Tony Saunders, both candidates on the Republican side of the uh, ballot for uh, county prosecutor. Uh, prosecutor Joe, a boss hog alum, is uh, is retiring. Uh, I don't know if he's moving to the golf course in South Carolina or the the racetrack in Indianapolis. What he's going to do, but uh, he's he's moving on. We're going to have a new prosecutor, so we're going to hang out with these guys today, uh, learn about the office, learn about uh, about them, and uh, let everybody uh, be informed as they go to the uh, ballot box in May. Do want to thank our sponsor, Big Bounce Inflatables, for the episode. Awesome to have them on board. Uh, this show is about our lives in rural Indiana. We're here to push your boundaries and make you think as individuals. Sometimes we'll provoke you. Other times we'll make you laugh, but hopefully you'll always learn something new. Uh, we just did about 15 minutes of Patreon to, uh, to let Jesse not laugh at any jokes or show any personality. It was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about concerts. We did. And how far you would drive. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe it'd be cool to talk in hours because that's what most people think of when they talk about driving. But you said, no, no, no. Let's convert everything to an integer. <coughs> miles. And, and we, we had to talk in miles. But not just how far you went, but the full round trip. That's how you show commitment to Jesse. Well, I mean, you know, you could drive to Indy. And it could be a five-hour trip. If you went to Chicago, it's also a five-hour trip, depending on traffic. So it was fun. We had, I think it was a, an enjoyable Patreon. Worth, uh, worth a little something to people. Learn a little bit about the candidates, and we'll, we'll know once the what, what they've done. The Patreon money comes in. Yeah, cha-ching. They, they might have reduced their dollars <laughs> immediately. After. They're like, "This is terrible content." <laughs> I really, re- I want more people from Patreon to remove their money so that Jesse, we know that we have Jesse, the, Jesse, we're Jesse. getting metrics. You are very much a troubled salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you just need valid data, you know to make. Yeah, we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Or you could say the valid data is, did new people sign up? Did you retain them? How long? There's a lot of ways you can measure things. We don't need to go not, down this rabbit not hole. Not entirely upon, uh, we have on cancellations. All right. We do have to thank the folks that give it $50 or more a month. That's the absolutely incredible Christy Avery. I can see she's already in the chat room. John Phillips, our, uh, our very good friend over at the uh, Andy Moore Buick GMC and Fishers. And uh, Anthony Meyer, he's, uh, he, he's out there running the roads. Uh, Delivering, uh, delivering freight and food and whatever else across across the country. Listening to, uh, listening to what he calls his favorite podcast. I don't know why what we've done to earn that, but he he says we're his favorite. Last I heard, he is shipping rockets to Russia. Well, could be. I, I know he's been doing <laughs> he's doing, been doing a lot of very northern routes. I, yeah. I think he's been up he's been up on Lake Superior and, and all points in between. Uh, and there are some people that can see Russia from uh, from up there. So yeah, you some people do. Yeah, <laughs> I can see it from Alaska. I've heard that. Uh, I see John Phillips is in the uh, chat room as well. All right, let's uh, let's get into the candidate series here. We're talking uh, we're talking with Tony and Michael. Uh, I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves a little bit, and uh, and we'll start to familiarize ourselves, and we're going to jump into into the conversation. 
Tony, let's start with you. Tell us, tell us about yourself, your uh, your your background, and what what makes you tick. Well, I've uh, been a practicing attorney here for sixteen and a half years. I've been part of the uh, legal system here when I clerked for another attorney in town, starting in early two thousand four. Uh, I have lived in Henry County since 1986 when uh, we moved to the family farm after uh, my grandfather died, and I've been here ever since, and I actually have a long, my family has a long history in this county, and uh, when I was in law school, I thought I could serve the people of my county by practicing law here. I had uh, graduated from Shenandoah High School in 1995, and I Went to Purdue, uh, got my engineering degree, realized I did not like that. <laughs> not into the computer thing because it was very uh, – back then, I kind of got in in that in-between era where you didn't have a lot of computer knowledge available to you in the smaller schools. So I wasn't good with computers. And I, I went to law school, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed what I was doing. And, and I've been able to uh, interact with a lot of people. And help a lot of people. And I really enjoy that part of, of my job is being able to take somebody who has a problem and help them solve that problem. Um, I've, I'm your neighbor. That's right. <laughs> I'm right next door to you. Tony, Tony and the, the boss hog crowd share a parking lot once a week. I'll say many times I show up and I look in there and there's someone in there and that must be you. <laughs> <laughs> I do work late, much to the chagrin of my wife and children. Yeah. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do to make money, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, so, uh, yeah, I've been over in this particular office since 2009 on my own. And uh, in that time, uh, I've just uh, I've enjoyed what I've done. And uh, I want to be able to serve the people of Henry County better uh, as their prosecutor. And that's why I'm running. Awesome. And Michael, let's get to know you a little bit. I, I, you reminded me that we met, you were, you were going door to door with, for uh, Prosecutor Joe four years ago. And I met you just, just outside my house. Yes, I was walking while we were on. It was, I just know we were on the south side. Yep, of we're on South Main Street, I think, just and, outside uh, of uh, Southview yeah, we, or something. We met and I, as I mentioned, I told you today, I know Sean Rouse, a friend of the program and, uh, he always speaks so highly of the program, and I. So that's how I've always he vouched for remembered. us. Yes, I vouched <laughs> for you. Well, that's very good. So tell us about yourself. Your your what you've done practicing. Your background. Thank you, uh, and th- thank you for having me on tonight. I, I'm a deputy prosecutor. I started here in the Henry County Prosecutor's Office in 2002. Uh, so I've been a deputy prosecutor for over 20 years. I started out of law school. Uh, I came here and I was fortunate enough to have this position. I wanted to get involved and work in a prosecutor's office and this position was open. And so I was fortunate enough to, to get it. Uh, I went to law school at IU Indianapolis and I graduated in uh, May of 2001. My work experience, I did work for, I started as a part-time deputy prosecuting attorney and, uh, I worked as well as an associate at the Milliken Law Office, and now Mr. Milliken, he's joined up with Defer Varan, and uh, Mr. Milliken had a law office, and he was nice enough to let me be an associate and do some civil work in his office for about four years, and then there was an opportunity uh, to work a full-time position, and so I've been in my current position since October of 2005 in the prosecutor's office. Awesome. So what what motivates you to, to jump into the race? What motivates me? Uh, as you indicated, I campaigned for Joe. Uh, it's been a great privilege to work for Joe. Uh, Joe wasn't going to run. I've always had a 
always thought I'd like to serve. I enjoy serving my community as a deputy prosecuting attorney. I've always had it in the back of my mind that I'd like to run for office someday and experience that. I didn't know when that opportunity or how they even had opportunity would present itself. And then when uh, Joe decided he wasn't going to run for reelection, I spent a lot of time uh, discussing it with my wife. Uh, we, we did consider it. And I had something I, Something that I just decided I wanted to do at this point. The opportunity was there. I want to take a leadership role uh, in the office as well as in the community and trying to help our keep our community safe. And this has just been a great opportunity to 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 do that at this time. I really like campaigning the the campaigning process and jumping into the politics. It's great, and uh, I enjoy it. It's, I, I enjoy meeting people and I enjoy getting to know people, uh, and I also. That was when when we wouldn't when I was discussing it with my wife. She would say when I'd go out and I'd, I'd, I've done things for a few candidates, and I would always come home and just say how much I enjoyed it, how much I enjoyed getting out there. And so when we were uh, deciding whether to run at this time, uh, that was something we always came back to: is that this is a good opportunity to to do it at this time, and uh, and so I'm really enjoying it and looking forward to it, and and doing it right now. Tony, t- tell us about why I guess why this is the this is the time you think it's right to run for prosecutor and how the campaign's going for you your side. Yeah, so um, I've spent, like I said, about sixteen and a half years practicing, and uh, the funny thing that I've observed is not only uh, how much you learn as time goes on, but how much you learn about yourself and taking stock in what what it is that you need to watch. What I need to watch out for when I'm doing something. Am I doing this the right way? And and one of the things that I find when I when I campaign is people come to me and they'll tell me about problems they have or questions that they have about why a certain thing works this way or another. And I learn about what the people say their chief concern is. And sometimes it's not what the people in the system's chief concern is. And I enjoy uh, learning what those criticisms are and seeing how I can use my skills to help them. And the reason that now is the time is because I do have uh, such a great deal of experience, and it's a wide range of experience. It's not just in the criminal context. For example, when you start out, you think you're going to change the world, okay? And, And you get what they call target fixation, where you're just worried about what's in front of you. Well, one of the things I've learned over the last 16 years is that what you see in a family case, what you see in a delinquency case, what you see in a chins case, all of these things lead to future problems if you don't adequately address them now in the here and now. So what I look for are global solutions to problems. I, when I represent a client, I don't do anything that would create a problem for them down the road. For example, if there's a, a plea agreement or if there's a, a resolution to a family case where there's a commitment that I know my client can't make, I steer them away from. And it's because of that global view of how all of the parts of the legal system and all of the uh, component cases interact that I think I'm in a better position than anybody right now uh, to serve. And it's very important that while you can just deal with the criminal case that's in front of you, you realize that there are consequences down the line for not dealing with it in a more global sense, being soft, letting this person slide because you feel sorry for them. Uh, You can't do that. You've got to make sure that there's an 
adequate respect for the law. And the only way you get an adequate respect for the law is to vehemently enforce those laws. And we're about to have a new jail, which means we're about to have more room to house people and we can be stronger on crime. We can put more people in jail who need to go there. But the other thing that I want to focus on is there's problem-solving courts now that are designed not necessarily to put people in an incarceration uh, situation, but to address their problems so that we uh, don't see them all the time. At the candidate forum, the Republican Club had, Jay Davis mentioned the statistic that 90% of their inmates have mental health problems. And uh, I had already started looking into the problem-solving court, uh, mental health court, where instead of putting people into a system, a jail, or something along those lines, we put people into mental health treatment that hopefully gets them on the right track. Now, obviously, you can't keep them there forever. It's like drug court or or, uh, any problem-solving court. You can't keep somebody in there forever, but hopefully you give them the tools that they need so that they're not constantly in and out of the system because that's one of the problems that we have in this county is the people that I saw when I started practicing law in 2005, we're just seeing them. Massive recidivism. Absolutely. But they start out as users or people with mental health problems and they start dealing to feed their habit because we've not solved their problem. Yeah. Or even given them the opportunity to solve their problem, which is the thing. You can't make somebody change their ways. So – for the time, and I want to bring Jesse in on this conversation. For I guess for my adult consciousness, mm-hmm. you've seen people running for prosecutors saying, "I'm going to be tough on crime. I'm going to be tough on crime." Well, I was going to say, I want to step back. Here. Actually, I want to. Uh, can we define what a prosecutor is? Because I don't know if I, I'm, I'm trying to like step back into if someone's just listening to this for the first time. Hopefully, they are um, because they're interested. But like, what what is the role of the prosecutor? Like, we don't talk about that in our notes, but sure. it's super important to discuss. So. Well, let's jump over to Michael or whatever. Jesse, your prosecutor is your your chief law enforcement officer of the community. Yeah. The prosecutor is going to be the one who's going to be able to set the tone for the community and be able to set policies and and be right there and make sure our community stays safe. Uh, So that's one function of the prosecutor is the chief law enforcement officer. You also have the prosecutor. You also have to have the ability to run the office manage the office. And I know that's something we, we might get to later, but you're going to be a, your manager of the office. You're going to have to deal with budgets. Uh, you're also going to have to deal with the situation of a, a small County like ours. Prosecutors going to also have to take court cases. Some bigger counties, the prosecutor would have the luxury of just being a management person. But a, here in a smaller County, a prosecutor is going to have to spend time in court just due to the, the due to the demands at times of, there's only so many staff members to be able to cover all the courts. So at some points, the prosecutor is going to have to be in court. And so that's the function of the prosecutor. Tony, do you want to add anything? Yeah. So the um, way I envision the office is that. So the prosecutor, actually one of the pro, one of the challenges that either one of us will have, depending on the outcome of the election is that uh, the chief deputy is going to retire. Mm-hmm. And the investigator is going to retire and we're probably going to lose both of those people. And those are big holes to fill. And what the prosecutor has to be able to do is rely on the investigator. My intent is to set it up in that office, similar to what you would see in the larger counties where you would have a, uh, 
a group of uh, a group of attorneys who would handle uh, plea agreements, pretrial motions, things like that. And then you would have uh, myself and the chief deputy, and we would try cases and we would uh, pursue convictions. And I think one of the things that uh, has kind of hurt overall, and it's not Joe's fault, it's COVID's fault. Right. We didn't have trials for like a year and a half because the state Supreme Court kept suspending trials. And one of the problems that that creates, and, and probably the biggest problem that creates, is the jail fills up because criminal rule four gets suspended. All of these fast and speedy trial uh, rules got suspended. So you couldn't try people and get them out. So they're sitting over there filling the jail up. We don't have room. And now you've got to get those people out. But one of the problems that I think we need to deal with is uh, I have been told by four separate detectives that sometimes cases are referred to the prosecutor's office and no actions taken on them. And I have personally committed to those officers who've told me this uh, problem that I will either charge it or give them an explanation for why it can't be charged. Um, that's, so, yeah. So I guess that's, that's one of the questions I was going to get into is I guess there's some prosecutorial discretion and you're saying that there are, it's kind of, you can take action, you can choose to not take action at all, or you can say, I'm not going to take action. It's almost, almost like a governor signing a bill, right? There's three different routes you could go. Well, it's like he said, yeah. It, yeah. Michael said he was like the, the, uh, executive law enforcement or whatever. Uh, what chief was it? Law enforcement chief, enforcement. thank you. Thank you. Chief law enforcement. So it, it's it, what you're saying is that law enforcement officers will arrest somebody set or in preliminarily charged, but then they'll never get formal charges from the prosecutor's office. So basically what happens is a law enforcement officer detective or whoever will, and these are the people who don't, they're not road officers. They're not picking people up off the street. They are investigating serious crimes and uh, they will do their investigation. And almost all of those investigations say, I am forwarding this report to the prosecutor's office for the appropriate charges to be filed. And uh, we need to make sure that those cases are properly screened. And if the detective sends it to me and he believes that there are adequate uh, evidentiary bases for filing the case or for pursuing the case, if I agree, we'll file it. If I don't, I'll call him up and I'll say, hey, we got a problem here. Can you get me whatever else I need? You know, can you get me X, Y, and Z? And he'll tell me no, or let me try, or whatever. And then once I know 100% of what I got, then I'll be able to make a better decision. Uh, but I do know that uh, one of the most important things that the prosecutor does uh, is screening cases. Because, and I don't know how familiar a lot of people are, so I'm going to kind of explain it a little bit. But in the federal system, in some of the original states, you have to present felonies to a grand jury and get an indictment. In the state of Indiana, you don't have to do that. In the state of Indiana, the prosecutor can solely decide whether to charge or not. And uh, the bad part about that is, is sometimes the prosecutor makes a decision based on bad information. Uh, I know for a fact I've had a couple of criminal cases uh, out of county, not in this county, uh, where the officer submitted a report and he left out exculpatory information that would have led to the prosecutor not charging. And in that particular case, it came out in deposition that 
they didn't have a case. And that's the type of thing that has to be avoided. And like I said, that wasn't here. That's not a criticism of Joe. That was in a different county. I won't say which one. But all of these cases, the charging decision is the most important decision. And then when it comes to actually pursuing a case, and I and one of the things that I, I have uh, experience with quite a bit is going to court and dealing with the rules of evidence. Because even if I'm not in a criminal trial, uh, I do go on family cases uh, that requires to follow the rules of evidence and other such cases. And I know that all of my cases are won pretty much before I step into the courtroom through preparation, through knowing what, I, what evidence I can get in, what evidence I can't. And it's being able to prepare for that. And one of the most important th- attributes that I bring to the courtroom for my clients is that when there's no phrase, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face, yeah. and it's how you react to tell us how good you are. Michael, Mike Tyson says that, I think. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, look, I do to promise. Mike Tyson. <laughs> Someone says that. It's one of the, one of the boxers. Now, yeah. I do promise not to bite anybody's ear off in court <laughs> if I am elected. But, but seriously, you do have a plan until you get punched in the face, and that's how you respond to that, and it's the ability to think on your feet. And I do rapidly adjust to whatever happens, and I've been very successful for my clients. I'd like to, that's where I am. Yeah. Let's let's spend some time with Michael and exploring the idea of, I guess, prosecutorial discretion. I get when you, when think, when things are filed, how you determine what your thought process is when, when it comes to that. Um, Yes. And uh, prosecutorial discretion, you get what you have to do is you, you review law enforcement reports. You review what the investigations uncovered. You take a look at everything. Times you're going to be able to send, you're going to send the law enforcement officer back out there. See what more evidence can we get? Then you're going to review the charges. You're going to see if there, uh, what the actions are. If those, if there's elements to meet crimes that have been committed, and then you have the ability to prosecute and charge. Prosecutorial discretion. It's something that, uh, something that's something. It's a, it's a, what the prosecutor has. And uh, you want someone who has a high amount of integrity, someone who has a high ethical standard, because the prosecutor, as Tony said, the prosecutor could be the one to charge you with the crime. And so you want someone with a high integrity and high ethical standards who's going to be able to, to make good common sense decisions. We're, we're attorneys, but you also have to be able to apply your common sense as well. And, and being able to determine what type of charges to file, what type of charges are appropriate. You need to have good communication with your law enforcement officers. I, one thing I always make sure is I make sure every law enforcement officer I know, they have my cell phone number. You have a question, you call me any time of the day, anytime you text, you call. I'll be glad to talk to you about anything because that's, that's what I do. I want to support our law enforcement officers. I want to make the best decisions for our community. So let's let's talk. Uh, I guess at a five thousand or a ten thousand foot level about the about the office and how it works. So the the administrative side, help helping folks understand. I think people have a, a general idea of how a sheriff's office works, and that the sheriff is the chief law enforcement officer. But they also have you know they run a they run a detention facility. They've got road officers. Tell us about what the prosecutor's office looks like. We we elect you to this job, and you've got. I assume you've got a staff. You've got some investigators. You've got uh-huh. trial responsibilities. What's what's it, p- paint the picture for the voter. Well. What are we hiring you for? 
what you're hiring for is you're hiring me for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, that I'm going to be ready. No no wonder you guys quit after four or eight yes, years. That's yes, like- but I'm going to be ready, and I'm going to be ready, and my phone's going to be on, and I'm going to be ready to answer calls. Crime doesn't know. Time to, crime doesn't go nine to five. So bad crime, any crime doesn't happen that time. I have to be ready. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Uh, and that's just, that's the responsibility of the job. It's a great, it's a great responsibility and it's a great privilege. It's something I, I really considered uh, w- when I decided to run, is that something I'm ready to take on? And I am, but that's what it is because I've, I'm, I'm familiar with it with my 20 plus years of experience I know what needs to be done because I've seen it done and I've had opportunities to do it. And it's just something, it's something that you, again, someone with a high integrity and great ethical standards, but let's talk about running the office though. What, what does the office consist of? Uh, the office consists of, uh, let's start just with the process, uh, the, the staff, the prosecutor staff. Uh, and you're going to have a chief deputy prosecutor, we have an excellent chief deputy prosecutor right now, uh, Rick Culver, and uh, he's a he's he's excellent. He was a longtime judge in Hancock County. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that he's not going to last the next term, the the term of the next prosecutor. He's going to retire at some point. I hope he stays a while, but I don't know if he will or not. Uh, then we have there are two state paid deputies. Uh, these state paid deputies are. Uh, what they do, and the reason that they're referenced, I'm going to refer to them as the state paid deputies. Basically, state paid deputies, they're paid by the state. Yep. Then there's two county deputy prosecutors, uh, paid deputy prosecutors. I One of them works part-time and one of them is full-time. I'm the full-time county deputy prosecutor. Uh, then there's a county deputy uh, paid deputy prosecutor who works in the child support division. Uh, then we have an investigator. There's one investigator. We have an office manager for the prosecutor's office, the criminal division side. Uh, there's three legal assistants who help prepare the cases, do the paperwork on the. Are, are all these folks in the justice side. center? I guess. Yes, on all Street. the yes, all in the justice center. Uh, and I'm going to say a criminal division and a child support division. The child support division, it's there's there's a door and that there's a physical door separation separating it only certain people are supposed to go through that door because of some uh, federal incentives incentives that are received by the child support office and uh, and so only people who have done the train the appropriate training and have the proper clearance are supposed to go in the child support office so that's why when i say there's two divisions and two offices we're actually one big office it's all a matter of funding i guess yes yes which Yes. Government is really good at figuring out what the county paid for, what the state paid for, yes. and what the what the feds feds paid for, and complying with rules to make to get your head count to where it can be right. Yes, and then there's a child support office manager, uh, two case managers in the child support offices uh, who help cl- do their duties, which are establish paternity, establish child support, collect current child support, and collect arrearage. And uh, I say the uh, two part time child support de- uh, case managers as well. And so if, if you're elected, you would expect no major changes with the staff as far as the, this, the head count, the organization, that kind of thing. Uh, our staffs in the 20 years I've worked there, the staff members change. We've lost one of the legal assistants right. uh, just because of county cutbacks, sure. which is normal. Uh, 
will there be staffing changes? There, there will be because. And, and I'm not I talking say about that, individual names. I'm just no the, the structure names. of the organizational structure. The orga- organizational structure. Uh, we'll, we'll look into if I'm hired. We'll look into hiring another full time case manager in the uh, child support division. There'll be ways that we could do that without costing the county funding, and we're going to look into that. Uh, also, but the the personnel there'll be changes just to the extent that there's there will be retirements that are coming within the and I'll just say the the next four year term that's fair to say uh, the structure there could be some structural changes on how cases will be divided and uh, assigned and what kind of caseload everyone has but there won't be uh, but the the office I would continue to run the office fairly similar to how it's been run all right. Anything on that topic from you, Tony? Well, just I don't plan on any uh, personnel changes. Uh, I've worked with pretty much everybody in that office on individual cases, and I don't have a problem with any of them. Uh, Even Michael, who's running, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not planning on any of those changes. Like I said, you've got two pretty uh, pretty big changes that are coming just through natural retirements. And I think you have to get a handle on those. Uh, the one thing I would like is maybe to have an additional investigator uh, on staff to be an additional liaison between the prosecutor's office and law enforcement. So is that the kind of question we need to be talking to the county council folks about when they come on? If uh, maybe. if the prosecutor's office can have find a way to get additional funding for more investigators? Do you agree with this? As it well, may just be yeah. a shell game. Interesting with the prosecutor's funding uh, – Prosecutor funding is going to be a lot. It's going to be a very not a lot different, but some different in that prosecutor's office is a little bit self-funded, where we generate funds through uh, people who don't have criminal histories and they're charged with uh, uh, misdemeanors or some low-level felonies. We enter into what's called agreements to withhold prosecution, where we stop prosecuting them for a time period. They comply with some terms and conditions. And then they pay court costs, and then those funds are going to those funds are then contributed, and they help help run the prosecutor's office. And uh, so uh, that's part of the funding. That's a little bit different than uh, the is that camp, most the of the council. funding, or is that like is that most of the funding, or is that just it's not most of the funding. Yeah, no, it's just part of the funding. But it's just part of the funding. Gotcha. But it's that different than uh, other county offices. Right. Other county offices don't have ways to. Well, that helps manage some of your bias, right? I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it's <laughs> if it's all I, your funding, you're I, like, look, we'll just. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I got to charge you. You have an incentive to to to, exi- to continue your existence, right? Yeah. So I could I could see. No, I Jesse's- didn't know that. I'm just saying because I didn't know that. So that's that's interesting information. So. So, um, Tony, how does the average citizen interact with with the prosecutor's office? How would it, in our day to day? How would we would we notice the prosecutors doing their job? Any any? Well, you know, it's like anything you don't notice something until something bad happens and you either commit a crime or you or someone you love or care about is the victim of a crime. And at that point, and I guess it goes back to the question of you asked, why are, why would we hire you? And the reason you want a strong and aggressive prosecutor is because you are not allowed to go get justice on your own. You're relying on the prosecutor to do so. So if you are unfortunately the victim of a crime, you want someone who's bold, aggressive, and has a reputation for getting things done. And 
Somebody, that, somebody stole my truck, and I'm really not supposed to go recover it myself and handle that. And last I it, checked, we don't have any Bruce Wayne's in here. So. <laughs> we would prefer you didn't. No. Uh, because then you could go from being the victim to being the criminal, which is a, not a good trait. But anyway. Not ideal. No. <laughs> no, but anyway, that that's what that's what you're really, uh, really looking for here is somebody who uh, can get into court can say, you know, if you want to take a plea agreement, these are the terms. If not, we'll go to trial. And uh, then knowing when you go to trial, you're going to lose, and whatever I offered you is going to get worse after you lose. And that's one of the things in Henry County that I think we really need to get back to is uh, getting people in front of juries, teaching that respect for the law. And, uh, and in trials, I don't Trials are such a major undertaking, the time it takes up from the courts and everything else. Uh, but I think it's important to have them. Uh, but sometimes in another county that I won't mention the name of, they overdo it. Uh, I was in a court over there for a family law matter, and the judge looked at me and said, I'll be honest with you, I have trial criminal trials set every week for the next four months. That's a little bit overkill. You got to find a good balance. and. One of the things that that I hear a lot is the uh, so-called jailhouse lawyer says, well, the longer I sit here, the better deal I'll get. And uh, that's not something – that's not an attitude that we need to foster or encourage. Uh, We need to be getting these people out of jail. We need to get these cases cleared off the docket one way or another. And uh, we don't need to have people sitting around waiting for a better deal. They need to know they got it. Uh, It's not getting any better. And it'll only get worse if you force us to go to trial. And the same, same with you, Michael, as far as that, how the average citizen would interact with the office or how they do interact with the office. Any comments on that side? Uh, it's, it's a good point where you're dealing with people usually at one of their lowest moments of their life when they have to come into contact with the prosecutor's office. You're dealing with someone who's either been charged with a crime or they've been a, or they're a victim of a crime. Uh, how do people, I mean, you can, that's how people come into contact. That's why people, someone would have the need to, to deal with the prosecutor's office. Always cherish, always, always take into account as a victim. You, when you're the prosecutor, you don't represent the victim. You don't represent what they want, but you do respect them and you do treat them with respect. And you always remember, I always post on my office statutory victim rights that people have as well as the constitutional Indiana constitutional victim rights that they have, which are very similar. They've been essentially the constitutional right was codified, but uh, how do you contact came into contact? That's one of the things I do enjoy about living in the community is uh, I'm around the community. I, I live my life and you're around the community. You get to see people when you're going out and you're visiting with them and, uh, you get to see people out in the community. They're able to talk to you and they're able to see you and be like, oh, I've had situations. Uh, people have come, come to my home to install a refrigerator. And they were like, I remember you, you prosecuted me for drug dealing. I went to prison for this many years. <laughs> and, and, uh, but thank you for doing that because I needed that. I needed treatment. And, uh, uh, Walking walking down down the road, people coming up. I've had a situation. Someone came up to me and was like, "Thank you for prosecuting my brother and holding him accountable. He needed that." 
just being out and about in a town, someone saying, thank you. you, you prosecuted the person who battered my mother. Thank you for holding that person accountable. So, but a cherisher always enjoy hearing comments or talking to the public. That's why I got into this line of work is being able to try to help people, trying to help people, those charged with crime or those people who've been victimized, unfortunately, and having to, having to help them. Also, you can also help people who are have have had struggles in their lives and have been charged with crimes, and they've been able to turn their life around by being held accountable. So, something that I I wanted to ask each of you about is the uh, we, we we've referred to it as a jail, and I know it's more than a jail. Like the official term that I read in the uh, in the paper is that it's the detention and rehabilitation center that's getting ready to open, and what effect that's going to have on our community. So, you've got a facility that now is going to have more more space for headcount, but also some treatment options. And how, how does that interact with the prosecutor's office? Is that, I assume it's going to be a, a net benefit oh, having a new facility. Yes. I mean, it's, it's going to be a net benefit. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be out of a good, it's going to be a place where the, the offenders are going to have better conditions than they do now. It's also going to be a place where we're going to have additional beds and those additional beds will be able to be put to you. Be put to use if necessary. Uh, it's going to be a net benefit. The treatment options are going to increase, uh, safety options as well. But it's going to allow the it will allow the community to be safer because there's are going to be more more beds. So that is going to be a net benefit as as well as the additional services that will be able to be provided. Tony, any comments on the new facility from your side? Yeah, the uh, one of the things uh, when I started was. Uh, Judges had the ability, the practical ability, they always have legal ability, but one of the tools to enforce parents who don't pay support and make them pay their support was incarceration. Okay. Well, as the jail filled up with a bunch of uh, people that the state said they didn't want to house anymore, courts kind of lost that ability to throw somebody in jail for not paying their child support like they should. And hopefully, with the additional beds, if we get somebody who refuses to pay their child support, they can be put in jail and think about it and realize that, hey, maybe I should pay my child support. So that puts another tool in the bag of the child support office to collect. And I think that's a very important uh, important tool because when I started out, Judge Payton, you always had uh, you had uh, what we called hate day. Friday morning was in Superior One. And Friday afternoon was in circuit court. And Judge Payton always said, you always asked him, how much can you pay? And then he always raised it by $100 because they could always come up with $100 more. And the idea is you've got to be able to scare people into paying their support because a lot of people don't want to. Uh, they want to take care of their wants before their needs. So I think that's very important because one of the things that the prosecutor's office does that doesn't get, I would say, much glory. It doesn't get any glory at all is collect child support for parents who really need it. And oftentimes they get involved because the uh, parent who's required to pay is either reluctant to pay or is refusing to pay just to mess with uh, the mom or dad, whoever's receiving the money. So having that extra tool in the bag will help quite a bit. And then uh, as far as uh, I agree with Michael, it will give us more beds to deal with uh, recidivism which is a, a huge problem. And, and, and the big problem with recidivism really isn't a, it's not really the prosecutor's fault. It's more the state legislature's fault because years ago they decided that 
they didn't want to house people convicted of level six felonies anymore. And we had to find creative solutions to that. Well, you take a county like ours where the jail was obsolete when it was built. They've tried to add beds by with the transition center and by adding an extra rack to the bunk. Uh, but it didn't really work. And that's why we had the overcrowding situation we have now. Hopefully, uh, even with those problems from the state, we can still use those beds and put them to good use to to discourage uh, recidivism. So yeah, that was the and Jesse can help help expand on this. But the next theme in our conversation, I guess, was yeah, we have more beds, but as a community, I feel like we've had the conversation more. We're trying to reduce the headcount of the number of folks that are incarcerated. The United States is, you know, you, you see the chart, and the U.S. has got, you know, in the top two or three countries in the world for the per capita folk, number of folks that are jailed. Yes. Um, so we're having this discussion, and yes, there's there's another tool of of putting folks in in jail, but what can the prosecutor's office do to reduce that to to reduce the headcount? Well, and that's why the problem solving courts are so important. Because it give when when you walk in to court with a criminal defendant, you say, "Well, judge, you know, yeah, my guy screwed up, but just give him another chance." I don't know if he's worthy of another chance. The judge doesn't know if he's worthy of another chance, but sometimes they give him another chance. The, the really uh, the great part in my mind about problem solving courts is it says, "You know what? I don't know if you're worthy of another chance or not." But we're going to put you in drug court. We're going to put you in mental health court. We're going to put you here, and then you are in charge of whether you get a second chance or not, and you control that. So help help me define a term real quick. You're saying a problem-solving court. I know there's a veterans court. I know as a voter, we elect a circuit court judge. We elect superior court judges. Is is this a theoretical court that these folks are sitting over, or is it a – who's – Who's in charge of that? Of this? this is like probation, right? Like, is this is what you're it's thinking It's like about? intense probation. Okay. Um, so uh, Judge Crane is the circuit court two judge. He is in charge of both the veterans court and the drug court. Uh, in those courts, of in in those situations uh, with the drug court, you sign a plea agreement that's an open plea agreement, and it says, "I will abide by the rules of drug court until I graduate." If I am kicked out of the program, then the judge has the authority to impose any sentence within that plea agreement that he deems is appropriate for your violation and for the law you broke. Um, so it's, it, but you're there every week. You're being intensely monitored. Uh, it's, it's, it's probation. Uh, it's just very intense probation. Predation plus. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, it's 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 not. <laughs> I was quite, gonna say. I was, what's Michael's opinion on this? I guess is oh, well, not to like cut you off, but probation plus. One of the things that's different, a little different about veteran problem solving courts is there's more of a what would be called like a team aspect to it, mm-hmm. and that and so and team members who they are. Let's start with veterans court. You're going to have like our local. Veteran service officer. He's part of the team. Uh, community corrections. There's usually two people from community corrections there who are part of the team. The sheriff is part of the team. Uh, veteran for veterans court. There's a veteran treatment coordinator. Uh, we have a great one. He's named Eric Dungan. He does a great job. He works here in Henry County. He also does 
does the veteran treatment coordinator over in Delaware County. Do, do these individuals, I'm not trying to cut you off, but oh. do these individuals, and I, I was going to ask him, but since you're kind of speaking to this, because you're kind of elaborating on what makes the structure of these things. Um, are those the people who help build the framework from which you guys operate? Like you would operate from like oh. you said, like if they fail, like you said, if they fail, then they would be charged. Oh, uh, potentially. So are the, do you work with those people to come up um, with the, the structures of all those things? Jesse, yes. And there, I'm, I'm the prosecutor's office is a team member as well as the, uh, a, there's so it's, a like, a, it's like a council or a committee or whatever, yes. right? Yeah. But, yeah. They, but instead of using council or committee, they use team. team yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I get it. So, okay. Cause and, you're, you're on the team to try to reduce your, the goal, right. Is to reduce people going into jail. Like that's uh, what you're trying to do well, to some degree, at least. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, the goal is the individual person who's there. Right. Yeah, exactly. But, but Get them the, turned around. But yes, the goal is, yeah, I mean, you cut down on crime, of course, but veterans court, it's the team framework. Uh, same with a drug court. Uh, the team framework, instead of a veteran surface off, service officer and a veteran treatment coordinator, you're going to have Meridian. We'll have someone there uh, be able to help the people with a, but most of the team members are are the same. The mental health court is something I know has been discussed with Judge McCord. One of the issues with the mental mental health court, I, I, we're going to get there. I think we're going to get there in the next four years, hopefully sooner. Uh, but one of the issues is we need the community partners who are going to be able to team up with this and be able to provide these services. Uh, it just can't be the court wants to do it. You need partners in the community to make the teamwork of these problem solving courts work. The, so where did the idea from problem solving courts come from is like, I'm guessing you probably like other things, right? We went out to other counties and potentially States. I think I can't remember McCorkle. I think somebody went out and looked at like different jails, right? Um, is that like where did these frameworks come from? Okay, I, this state, is all new information to me. So yeah, the state supreme court came up with these ideas, okay. and they ran some pilot programs. Uh, the state supreme court is really working toward uh, trying to streamline the process mm-hmm. of justice, not just take a ham-fisted one-size-fits-all approach. Okay, uh, they've taken this approach in uh, uh, civil cases as well. We have commercial courts. We have some other examples. Uh, one of the things that uh, mental health court is not as widespread as the other courts. Drugs, drug courts are pretty widespread. Veterans mm-hmm. courts are pretty widespread. Mental health courts, uh, Hancock County yeah. currently has a mental health court system. Does Marion County as well? Or? I believe they do. Marion County has just – and Allen County have quite a few – uh, problem solving courts because they obviously have resources and they need to manage it. Right. I, right. And they obviously have like mental health. I, I want to say we all have like probably proportionally, it may be the same, but there's, it's this problem of scale, a, a community of a million people versus a community. Yeah, of it's just, it's a problem. It's right. the problem of scale. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, unfortunately probably in our, our counties, like the mental health people are getting the shit, the short end of the stick because we just don't have the resources to take care of them yet. Right. Well, and and that's another thing to consider is that, and and it kind of blew my mind when Jay said 90% of the inmates have mental health problems and there's a good chance that's why they're there. Because I know from my work uh, with criminal defendants that a lot of the drug problems started as self-medicating for 
a mental health issue. Right. Uh, I take this because it helps me with my anxiety. It helps me with my uh, mood disorder. And I just feel better when I'm on it because I have right. all of these problems. And what the mental health court, which I would commit to starting to work on day one, is that it would give – and the other problem we have, too, is a lot of this – these mental health problems require expensive medication. Right, yeah. And the, some people don't have uh, insurance, so they get what they can off the street or off their buddy, and then they get caught, and then they're in the system. But if we get them the treatment that they need and we give them the opportunity to use medical science to help them as opposed to uh, chemical experimentation, uh, they would probably stay out of the system going forward. Yeah. And, and and the good part is, is if you look at these other counties like Hancock County, Marion, the places who have that particular problem-solving court, you can model your program off of them, know what their pitfalls are and all of that. And, uh, you know, it is, what, it is what it is, and then you can solve the problems better. So in advance of this show, I, obviously I'm, I'm just an idiot that sells steel during the week, and I host a podcast once a week. So I don't have intense knowledge of a prosecutor's office. Uh, but I did reach out to a friend of ours. Craig DaCosta is a, is a patron and a listener and has been for many years. And he was the elected prosecutor of Kauai County, Hawaii, uh, and served about 10 years. Uh, so some of the questions that are coming and that I've included here are are the themes that he thought that we should talk on uh, and talk about. Uh, and the, the biggest issue he said is he said, ask these guys about what their views are on on incarceration of nonviolent offenders. So you know we've we've talked on this show uh, on the financial side about building a new faci- a new jail facility and the headcount's high and the state's shoving all the level sixes down. Uh, so I want to start with you, Michael, and and talk about the views. And I know the prosecutor's office has has, has some control, but legislators tell you other you know the law is the law, et cetera. From the prosecutor's office, what's the view on incarcerating nonviolent offenders? Uh, what my view is is. The goal is a nonviolent offender. We should get them, try to provide them services so there's not going to, uh, they're going to be able to correct the problems. That's the goal. Now, the problem you're going to run, the problem you run into is, is the people who continue to, to violate. I mean, you give up people opportunities. We talked about it. One, op- one option we, uh, the prosecutor's office has someone charged on a low level nonviolent offense, you can do a, do an agreement to withhold prosecution. You can start there. Okay. Well, it doesn't change a year later. They get arrested again. Okay. Well, then you can maybe try probation. But okay. the, so, but it, in theory, say they got arrested. And the next thing we're going to get into is, is possession of cannabis. So okay. they get arrested for possession of cannabis and then something happens. And a year later, another nonviolent thing comes up, mm-hmm. but then they're starting to tick the boxes and go further yes. into the system. Ticking the boxes is, is exactly right. What happens is, is you have people who, I mean, with one of the court, one of the things the court can order is what's called a pre-sentence uh, investigative report, and there are boxes on there. What what have what's been tried in the past? Let's let the court know what we've tried in the past. Have we tried probation? Have we tried uh, prob- a problem-solving court? Have we tried agreements to withhold prosecution? Have we tried these things? Now, have we tried community corrections? Have we get at least given them the opportunity where they've been court-ordered to go go to treatment? 
and they've had someone to work with, and this person will help them try to get in contact with a service provider to try to address these issues that is causing these nonviolent offenses. Uh, but unfortunately, there does become a time when there's just no more. Sadly, uh, and th- sadly, I've heard this statement. Uh, some people, they are, they are serving a life sentence on the installment plan. And that's just the, how they've decided to live their life. And we, we can try to give them all the opportunities th- that we can. And, uh, and we hope that it clicks sometime. We hope that we don't know what it takes to click. Someone would be a real rich person if they knew what it, was, what it took to get through to each individual person. Uh, but if we, if we were able to do that, because uh, the number one goal is rehabilitation. You get people rehabilitated, then they're not committing crimes. Everybody's that's good for everybody. I, I appreciate the empathy I'm hearing from both of you in, in talking and talking through this. Uh, Tony, uh, on nonviolent offenders and jail time, well, or incarceration. Once again, like everything, it's a matter of degrees. Uh, are we talking about misdemeanor, nonviolent offenses, level six, five, four, three, two, one? Well, obviously, there's no one uh, nonviolent offenses, but. Nonviolent, it all depends on the circumstances uh, because of uh, certain funding issues. And most of the time, if you have a misdemeanor nonviolent offense, it's your first offense. The agreement to hold prosecution is one of the better tools uh, that can be used. But there comes a point at which there's an old uh, – joke from the Naked Gun movie about this is your last chance and not one of those Steve Howe Major League Baseball last chances either. Um, there's too many second chances. There's second chance. There's second second chances. There's fourth second chances. And there comes a point at which somebody just has to go away. They don't want to be a part of society. They don't want to follow the rules. And even in nonviolent offenses, there can be people who are hurt by it uh, financially, um, emotionally. And I think we have to look before we just place certain crimes under the rubric of nonviolent. Uh, we have to look and see if there's a victim because anytime there's a victim, um, we have to make sure that we, we recognize that that person does have some damage and see if we can't try to write that damage. So you said finding if there's a victim. There are what some folks would call vic- victimless crimes as well. Uh, and Ryan Mears, that this is the next thing we had on the list was it, as soon as he was appointed a prosecutor, and ultimately I think he's been reelected in Marion County. But he said, "Hey, we're going to stop prosecuting cannabis, it, any possession, whatever." Yes, the law says this, but we're going to we're going to stop doing that. Yeah. The legislature has tried to take steps, and I don't think they've actually been able to get anything into law to stop the prosecutor's office from doing yeah. that. Is there any view on something like that happening in Henry County? Well, I can just tell you that when it comes to looking for a role model as prosecutor, Ryan Mears is at the bottom of the list. He's a terrible prosecutor. Um, sure. And the reason, and, obviously, and in Marion County, it's the it's the top headline and grabbing. Nobody knows who the tip. Well, you probably would. But who the Tipton County prosecutor is, or who you know who it is in Warren County, et cetera. But Marion County's the million people. The issue with not prosecuting simple marijuana possession is right now the procedure is they, they hear the procedure is that you're issued a summons, you come to court, you do an agreement to withhold prosecution, and you take a 16-hour 
uh, marijuana education course, you pay a fine, and in six months the charges are dismissed. I believe that's an excellent uh, model to follow. I would continue to do that. Uh, once again, the law only works if people respect it. And and I know there are attitudes on cannabis that a lot of people have that it should be legal, but it's not. But I'm also not going to treat it like you you know killed somebody. Uh, you get caught, you pay your fine, you move on, and as long as you don't become a repeat offender, we're, we're just going to act like it never happened. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm Which hearing, is basically what an agreement with the whole prosecution right. is. Let's act like this never happened. And it's some paperwork, but sixteen hours. But after a year, it falls you off. can get it expunged. Okay. Sixteen hours away. of uh, of of I, I'm marginally interested in seeing what the content of the. Uh, of the educational course would be. I am also uh, interested, but not enough to spend 16 hours <laughs> that's, looking that's, into that's it. That's what I said. Margin, marginal interest. All right, Michael, a lot of content. Your, <laughs> your, and your, it's $85. Your views. And how well is oh. it working? <laughs> I would, I went to the, um, open house for the, uh, house 54 districts on Tuesday night. And I was talking to a gentleman who lives in Southern Henry County. He was telling me about how he moved here, 20 years ago from Indianapolis because he didn't want to, he didn't want to live like that. I, I think of myself, I don't want to be Indianapolis. I don't want to live in Indianapolis. We don't want to be Indianapolis in Henry County. And so uh, my views on what the prosecutor in Marion County, when he made his announcement, he wasn't going to prosecute marijuana first as a prosecutor. You don't get to decide what the laws are. You're not, you're not a super legislator. You have to follow the law. If we don't respect the law, then we don't have anything. So you do have to follow the law. And uh, some of the legislation I think you briefly mentioned uh, about maybe trying to take prosecutor uh, discretion away and maybe having the attorney general get involved in local uh, County cases, and I don't. I disagree with that, though, as well, because it, it can. It's a slippery slope, yes, right? Because if you yes. have the state saying that you have to do something in one case because you're targeting it, it could potentially be applied in other areas. Yes, and but it, I think that just re, reaffirms what I've, I've I've mentioned. That's why you need someone with a high integrity, et, good ethical standards, and a, as well as just good common sense. And that's why you need that in a in a prosecutor is. It should just make common sense. If you're going to be the chief law enforcement officer in your county, you just can't go out and say, "Oh, we're not going to enforce. The, we're not going to enforce this law because I don't. I disagree with it." I mean, that just has to be the. That there has to be some. That's why the prosecutor needs common sense. Yeah, I. I so, so it, it, there's, I, I, there, there's legalities around wearing a seatbelt too, and it's a twenty five dollar ticket. Oh, and you know, it's. It, 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 I'm just trying to figure out where we are in the. You know. On the scale here, yeah. It's like, do you send them to jail or do you find them? Like, I think that's what you're trying to figure out, right? Yeah. And I think, and from Tony, it sounds like okay, you get one crack at it, but the come back a year later, and all of a sudden, it's going to be a lot more severe, right? Well, and and going back to, I think you asked about the uh, the uh, taking away the prosecutorial discretion by the state, the prosecutor's office, and this is why it's so important who's in the office, because the prosecutor's office is one of those offices that really has no you can't appeal 
anywhere. Prosecutor makes a decision to not charge. You're not get, there's no charges. And that's why you need somebody who's going to be aggressive, not let cases sit around. If there's a uh, crime against a child, you need somebody who's going to go after that crime, who's going to file it, who's going to pursue it. And you can't have passivity. Uh, you can't have uh, serious crimes or even really any crimes uh, being given away uh, because of not going to trial or because it would be too hard on some on someone to be there. It would be too much work. You got to have somebody who's willing to go in and say, look, this needs to be tried or your guy needs to take a plea agreement. And this is the offer, period. And uh, that's what I can offer is I offer that that no nonsense Let's get this thing going. We've got victims here who need help, and we need to protect people from those who would do them harm. And one of the things that has always kind of struck me is that a person who commits a violent crime for the first time, it's probably just the first time they've been caught. And that's really true with with uh, child molesters and people like that is uh, – if if you have the chance to get them, if you have the chance to take them down, if you have the chance to charge them, you need to do it because people need to know who this person is, and you can't. And you've got to make sure that those people uh, go to prison. What percentage of the caseload is dealing with that severity of of so, what's coming to the prosecutor? Are we talking five percent? Are we talking twenty percent of your life? Yeah. What I because I, I, I think we're talking about some of the extremes and and the and the importance you see there. But for the average citizen, how much? So there's around uh, six or seven hundred misdemeanors that are filed every year. Uh, I believe that there are around like uh, two a day. Yeah, like that. Almost more on the weekends. Of course, <laughs> of course. more on the weekends. But uh, and there are uh, around. Uh, 500 to 600 uh, level six felonies every year. Um, that's what Michael handles. Uh, based on what I've seen, you're probably looking at around five, it's probably a hundred or so fives. And then you get lower and lower as you go up because there's less and less. Most of the f- uh, fives, fours, threes, and twos you see relate to uh, drug possession or drug dealing because those are uh, graded based upon the amount. Uh, typically, uh, an amount causes it to go from a six to a five. And then if you had a dealing on that, that adds it, that makes it go up to a three. So you basically have a two class jump for dealing versus possession. Um, and so you, you, the amount of violent crime that you see in a year is probably not counting what you would call level six felonies because those would be include, uh, batteries with moderate bodily injury, uh, domestic battery in the presence of a child or causing moderate bodily injury, you would probably see maybe 70 cases a year of actual violent, uh, serious crime above a level six felony. And then you run into with the level six felony, the state doesn't want them. Right. They, so they're, they're the you have to keep them and you have to be creative in how you deal with it. So doing basic math in my head, maybe maybe five percent is of a five or above in in the way you view the case. So do you agree well, with these that, numbers, Michael? Like, I, I, I'm like trying to watch your face yeah. as people are talking. Like, do you agree with these numbers or the? You could say there's approximately 1,500 criminal cases filed in uh, Henry County. Now 
the percentage, what I would consider violent, when we talk about violent, you're going to talk about, I would say, robbery, burglary, anything causing a serious bodily injury, offenses against children, uh, murder, obviously. So the, the percentage, 5%, maybe 3 to 5%, I would say. But what's important to remember, that's just because that's the amount of cases, the amount of resources and time you're going to invest, invest in them is a, is a lot greater. Uh, For sure, yeah. Both the cases, there were two, two jury trials uh, in 2021, and both those cases uh, were uh, one was a child offense and one was a, a, a sex crime. Right. Okay. And uh, that's where the resources have to be applied when we talk about. Uh, well, you're not going to take them to court unless you know you can get them, right? Like, that's the guy, that's the goal. At least that's what the TV tells me. Like, we're not going to prosecute till we have enough evidence, right? Like, it's. Uh, uh, well, and maybe you can help me understand that more. This is me looking, thinking about TV, but like that's, we're not going to go to prosecution until we have enough evidence. So you're going to see due to the, there's going to be differences. Okay. Sure. Federal, federal crimes, federal, everything I understand about the federal system, they're not going to get involved in a crime until they, they're convinced that they have all the evidence they need. Yeah. They couldn't lose the case. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now with this, with your local offenses, Due to there's a lot of factors that sometimes, uh, sometimes after a crime's filed, you're still continuing to investigate. You're just still trying to put some pieces together, and uh, and so sometimes in a state in a state, and sometimes uh, your cases, you you might charge a case. Uh, you, I'd never charge a case if I didn't believe there was evidence that could convince someone. Firmly convince someone, convince someone beyond a reasonable doubt that someone committed a crime. It's, uh, but it, it sounds like you, that's you almost are inclined to charge if you if it's a if you're on the edge, you're almost inclined to charge to go down that path. Versus if you don't charge, then there's no backstop. Right? It, it's what Tony was saying is that as as a prosecutor, and that's why you choose to be aggressive. Is that if your office doesn't charge, nobody's going to take action on that. Is right. That- and I, I can tell you from the defense attorney's perspective, a lot of the time uh, we'll look at our client and we'll say, they got you dead to rights. Let's work out a plea. And where you get into that trial mode is when there's some questions about the evidence or you have um, conflicting stories with no physical evidence. Uh, you just you're relying on things that could fall apart on the stand. And, but for the most part, a lot of these cases boil down to those were the drugs. <laughs> those were on you or you were driving, you were drunk. Uh, that's why you see high conviction rates is because the, the evidence is there. But as you get higher up the ladder on charges, you sometimes have shakier evidence, especially because of the, of the gradation that you have of you go from a six for battery to a five, depending on the outcome, depending on the injury. So, uh, and then you, you, depending on the circumstances, you know, a child molest can be all the way from a four to a one. And in a lot of those cases, it's just, you know, he said the child said, or she said the child said, and sometimes uh, you have to go with what the child said as proof and hope it holds up on the stand. Uh, and, and, and as a defense attorney, 
you go to trial hoping that what the child says doesn't hold up on the stand, you see. Uh, but you ca- you cannot hold a case to the standard of, I know 100% when I file this, I'm going to win. Because if you do that, you won't file some of the uh, cases where there's not as much evidence. And the other part is, I've been in cases, one in this county, and Joe and I had a disagreement about it, uh, where uh, the testimony, my client was charged and the testimony of the uh, alleged victim fell apart in deposition. Not the prosecutor's fault. <laughs> she changed her story. But, uh, but you do have that risk, and you're never going to know because people say things a lot, and then when they're under oath and and the judge is there or the studio uh, lights are on stu- studio lights <laughs> are on. Somebody's there questioning them, holding their feet to the fire and they're now under oath and they hear that word penalties of perjury. They're like, yeah, maybe I was not, <laughs> maybe it wasn't like I said, and, and we just have to go on from there. But, but the higher the stakes, it seems like the harder the case and you can't be afraid of, of, of working hard and taking that chance. Because another thing that I know, a lot of prosecutors rely on is their conviction record. And there are two conviction records. There's the cases filed versus cases convicted. And then there's the trial wins and losses. And a lot of prosecutors jealously guard that record. And I guess the thing about it is at the end of the day, if, if I am elected to this position, um, I will not be afraid to take those chances. And if I get beat in reelection, because I took chances, I'm okay with that because I know that the chances that I took probably saved chil- some children from being victimized again, uh, some people from being brutalized again. And, and that's my goal uh, is to make sure that you know people are safe at the end of the day, whether they appreciate it or not. <laughs> Very good. Michael, anything else on this before we, we shift, shift, uh, shift topics? One thing I just wanted to, one thing I've always stuck with me, uh, one of my first years, my first year as I had, I had seven jury trials. That's normal. People want to test, test you, make sure that you have the ability to do the job. If you're going to be able to present a case to a jury, I took seven cases to jury trial. Uh, Tony's absolutely right. You call a child to the witness stand, uh, I did a child molest trial my first year. You call a child to the witness stand, uh, victimized defendant, victimized two children. Uh, one of them, one of them, brave little girls, just be able to testify her little heart out. I'll never forget. She, uh, she had a defense attorney asked her, did that, did it hurt when she was, this, this happened to her and the poor girl just had, she started crying because she knows, what she's supposed to say and she has to tell the truth and uh jury thankfully jury saw through that little girl and the, just the, that girl's natural reaction was able to help us get a conviction on that but the other little girl uh we worked with her and we worked with her and we worked with her to try to get her to be able to ex- express what happened to her and we just uh 
she did better every time of trying to open it up to everyone. And so we had two counts. One was a guilty, one was a not guilty. So thankfully the one guy with the, with the one guilty, he was still being able to be punished for what he did and be held accountable. Uh, but that, uh, that's something that always sticks with me. And that's what my experience brings to the table is I've been able to work with witnesses. I've been able to prepare them for what, what to expect when they go to court and be able to, work with them and hopefully be, they'll make sure I can do everything I can to be able to make sure that they can tell the facts as they see it. When you're, when you're a trial lawyer, one of the things I always remember is everyone, everyone sees things differently. We're all going to explain this, this whole situation. We've all lived through it. It's on video. We're all going to explain it just a little bit differently. There's going to be things that stick out more than other things to us doesn't mean anything's less true than others. It's just that's how we all operate. But that's how that's one of the key jobs of a prosecutor when you get into court is you want to make sure you do everything you can to help people be able to express themselves truthfully. Victims of the crime, law enforcement officers. Law enforcement officers are professional. They put our put their they work go out there and they work hard every day to keep our community safe. Uh some of them need need more uh, direction and trying to be able to express what, what occurred and what their investigation uncovered though. So you have to have that experience and be able to do that. We do, uh, do want to give another thank you to, uh, to the sponsor we have for the show. Big bounce inflatables uh, has, has stepped up and is uh, sponsoring this week of the candidate series. Uh, they've, they've been with us a few different times. So if you, uh, if you're into the, the big family party, uh, any any uh, any wedding? I think my brother had a bounce house one time at uh, at his own uh, about his thirty second birthday party. You can get uh, you get kind of that kind of thing from Big Bounce. Uh, we've also had support through the candidate series from Wyland's Flowers and the uh, the Slick Pickle Party Bus. So uh, lots of lots of folks helping to uh, to make this show possible for us. Uh, one more area that uh, that Craig had said that he wanted to me to ask about, and it was a little bit more in in line with the Hawaiian law. Uh, that they dealt with because I think they had to actually register handguns in the in the state of Hawaii, and I know Indiana doesn't require that, but we do have some changes with concealed carry where the governor is potentially going to be signing. This. I guess he did sign the bill uh, where we no longer have to have a uh, handgun permit. Uh, it's just a your constitutional right. You have constitutional carry starting in July. Any thoughts uh, on the legal ramifications of that, and from the prosecutor's view of anybody can have a handgun in Indiana now? Any thoughts? I don't. I don't think it's probably. I don't know how much it's going to change. I don't think July first, everyone's going to be like, "Oh, I can carry my handgun now." The people who've wanted to carry their handgun, they've had this ability to get a to get a license, and they've been able to uh, just like get get a car. I'm sure that's how most people, or get a driver's license. I'm sorry, but uh, that's I'm sure that's how most people carried it. It's so a lot of people have already been carrying their handguns, and they do it responsibly and safely and they do it. Uh, and so I don't, that's all going to continue. I don't think we're going to see a big change. The people who weren't supposed to carry them are going to carry them anyways. And the people who are, uh, who, who have been carrying them legally, they're just going to still continue their safe behavior with them. What concerns me and, uh, is it's going to make law enforcement's job. I'm, I'm concerned it's going to make their job harder because they're still, just because you have the right to carry a gun, uh, there's going to be exceptions to that. People who've had that right taken away for if you've been convict, 
convicted of a crime of domestic violence, uh, even a misdemeanor, you still lose the right to possess a firearm. This law doesn't give it doesn't restore that. No, because a when the, it's a federal violation as well. And so you're going to get that, but no, this law doesn't, there's, there's exceptions to the law. Is there technology to help them understand that when they're pulling people over? Is there, that's there. So you're saying like maybe that doesn't exist yet, right? Like, is that the, I mean, there is a technology, a technological problem, I guess. It's like, I'm a technology guy. So I'm like, uh is there a technological problem? If like, if you're an officer and you're stopping, do they have the ability to easily understand if they should or should not have a firearm? Um, Oh, if they should or should not have yeah, a because fire. you're saying like if they, yes, yeah, if they have some sort of battery or yes. whatever, right? Like, like, like some officers now they have they have like a something they can point on a driver's or on a license plate and be like, okay, is this is a person who this license plate is assigned to, or they have valid driver? Right. And if not, then, but no. Uh, so there's going to be there's some codes that law enforcement officers use, like they're going to be like domestic violence, and so. They, they could. It would, it's going to give them a heads up. I mean, like a code now is someone's got a personal protection permit, right? And uh, so the, their technology, yes, it's good, but it's going to change. The, it's going to change. There's good. There isn't everything. The world's about change, and then it's sure. about adapting to that change. Right. And so, of course, they're good. There's going to be systems put into place to help adapt to that. But uh, but that's just my concern initially because it's. I hit, the governor signed it Monday. Right. So, uh, but no, that, I would, that's one concern I would have as a, as a, uh, as I do have right now as it would be that Tony, any thoughts on, on that, on that change to the law? Uh, yes. I'm a longtime uh, gun collector. So I know the responsibility <laughs> that goes with owning a gun. Uh, I don't understand what all the fuss was about. I could carry a long gun in my vehicle uh, without a permit. And I don't know what the difference is. I would say that as far as law enforcement goes, I don't know a law enforcement officer that's a road officer that when they pull up to the car, they don't assume that the driver and every occupant in there is armed Uh, because it's not just guns that could be dangerous to an officer. An officer sticks his hand to get the license, got a knife, switchblade or something like that. We had a, uh, uh, security officer up at the justice center who got slashed with a driver's license. Um, so I'm not worried that it's going to affect law enforcement because law enforcement already assumes you're armed. Uh, and, and I think as Michael said, the thing to remember is all constitutional carry did was take away the requirement to have a permit. You still have to pass a background check to buy a weapon. If I want to sell you one of my weapons, and I know you have a felony, a mental health issue, a drug issue, and I sell it to you, and then you go and do something stupid with it, I'm getting charged. So this didn't take away any of the uh, responsibility for a responsible uh, for responsibility in gun ownership and gun sales, and it didn't create it didn't take away the ability to keep someone who shouldn't have a gun from owning a gun. All it does. All the permit did was say you cannot have it on you out in public or in your car. You could still have it at your fixed place of business or at your home without a permit. Right. So the, all this did was basically allow people to carry out public without a, a permit, and they could do that with long guns anyway. So I don't see what the big deal was. All right. Um, 
the the next one, I guess, is a it's a theoretical question, and it's it's more educational. Uh, in the last four years, we've seen a lot of wild accusations from the general public about our elected officials, and and you know the allegations of corruption or this or that. And I'm not sure how much how much truth there is to any of it, but I wanted to hear that. I guess if anybody truly believes that 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 there's an issue and there's corruption in in your local government does the prosecutor's office have any role in in investigating that and looking into that or would that be other who holds who holds a county commissioner accountable a county sheriff accountable a county uh, county council person accountable is that the local prosecutor is that the state who's where where is that responsibility lie well uh, if there's a crime committed, right. the, the responsibility lies with the prosecutor. That's where the prosecutor's oversight responsibility is. Is a is a when people in these positions of public trust, if they do violate the law, they they have to be held accountable to the law as anyone else is. And so that would be the position uh, that uh, what the prosecutor would would uh, the oversight function would be. Uh, would be that is that you would have to just have, if there's been a law violated, if there's been an accusation. I was, was watching the news. I grew up and I spent some time in Frankfort, Indiana. They had to charge the local. I know saw they charged the local sheriff with a crime there, and uh, the Clinton County Sheriff was charged. And so that would be the the prosecutor's responsibility is uh, of oversight. Is just investigate crime, same as any is, one of us here. Is whether you're an elected official or not, it's the same. Yes. Same responsibilities. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, if you were doing something in your elected position as part of your duties and you still committed a crime in doing that, then yes. I know we had a township trustee a few years ago that did some did some jail time mm-hmm. uh, for some issues in their in their office. Any any thoughts on that, uh, Tony? Yeah, one of the things that uh, I've observed with numerous uh, statewide corruption issues is uh, there was a case out of Hancock County where the sheriff was charged with some sort of corruption. And immediately, everybody started complaining about, well, the Greenfield police commissioner had it out for him. Well, the prosecutor had it out for him, and it was all just a big way to embarrass him. I think it's very important, and Joe has done this on uh, at least three occasions I'm aware of. He did it with the Knightstown police officer. Uh, He did it with the uh, Shields prosecution where if there's somebody in county government or in a and, and all county officials are pretty much it's a political it's 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 a political situation you're always better off to have a have the state police investigate and do a special prosecutor appointment so that you can't be accused of grinding an axe, political payback, or Just something. To remove like that. the bias, right? Yeah, not necessarily bias. I mean, I could not have any bias, like or dislike of an elected official, but it's the perception. Well, it's the perception, yeah. So it's. And, um, and we did. We did actually have a, ch- a question it's in the chat about extreme neutrality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. I was going to say it's about the Knightstown police situation. There's definitely something for. It. I couldn't remember the term, but, but like. See, there's a chance that if there's an elected official who's charged or even accused of a crime, that I know that person. Right. Okay. But if I get Phil Cavanaugh or, or Brent Eaton from another county, they probably don't. Right. Or if they're investigating somebody there, I probably don't know that yeah. person either. It's also that you're removing yourself from a – so you guys represent a system, right? Like you, you represent Correct. the system. And you don't want another member of the system to defend – 
other members of the system. Like it's just, it's a bad problem. So, um, you just got to remove. You need to remove yourself from that situation. And be like, look, other people are going to be investigating this. It's that way, we are we're hands off, and we're not trying to defend or or try to take a, like throw a coup, uh, <laughs> if you, if you want to call it that. But like, you're you're not going to try to like defend it or prosecute against it. You're just like, I'm just not, I'm out. It completely removes neutralizes it. Yeah, exactly. It completely removes the allegations of political witch hunt or political yep. payback. Sure. And and I think that. Because what we've talked about before of the prosecutor having so much power, you really, as prosecutor, don't want to be perceived as abusing that power for your own end. Right. And that's why those allegations of, even if they're false, even if I have no opinion about the person, you're still going to get right, that. You're painting a picture. Exactly. And, and people don't care about the truth. We've learned all that in the last four years. Eight oh. years. <laughs> yeah. True. <laughs> Oh, it's probably a tale as end as, as long as time. But it uh, is. But, but, but it we've just had, seems we've had it a seems com- extremely present. Right now. Pretty, yeah, yeah a, it's, it's a, pretty a, exaggerated. I think right now. the social media new, is making uh, it omnipresent. Completely new local government. It's omnipresent. Let's say that yeah. it's everywhere. Oh, I was thinking nationally. Well, I too. <laughs> across the board. It's, it's across the board. And even in this, even in this podcast, you guys wouldn't even understand. No, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jesse thinks what? I'm corrupt. I'm obviously getting rich uh-huh. off, off the patron dollars. Um... <laughs> Whatever. Uh, I, we did have another question that came in on the chat room uh, that I wanted. I wanted to give some love before we get to the end of the show. Uh, John Phillips, uh, a member of our Patreon group, he was asking about uh, the crowdsourced bail projects. Uh, we've seen folks that are getting bailed out. People come together and say, "Hey, so and so is in jail. They're awaiting trial." And and they'll get together and they'll they'll bail somebody out and then potentially in this case there was some I guess there was a violent effect. Uh, one of the folks that got bailed out in another community had a violent attack on a police officer. Um, is this, I guess it's a general question, but crowdsourced bail projects, is it, is that something that communities should be seeking and trying to get involved with and do, or is that a, yeah, look, you need to, you and your, your own need to handle your own bail. Uh, I, uh, I don't think that <laughs> I would never, I would never donate to a crowdsourced bail project. Uh, just to speak, but just to speak, uh, you always hesitate just as answer uh, for all circumstances. Uh, I, I don't think, especially, and I think about the the bail project that we've heard about in Marion County, where they've there's been some support. Uh, trying to post bond uh, for for offenders, and these end up being violent offenders who go out and recommit. And I think bond should be something that's personal, responsible for. Purpose of bond, we have to remember, is just to is to ensure appearance in court. So you need a bond, bondsman. Our, our our local bond schedule does it two ways, or has what's called a split bond, is surety bond, which has a bondsman on tap, and then cash. And we want responsibility. Uh, so a bad thing about this is a crowdsource bond. There is no responsibility to have, the, the you don't person. Have skin in the game yeah, any you have longer. no skin in the game any longer, and uh, or someone close to you has no skin in the game. Yeah, if you hundred people on the internet donate, give you money to bond. Who cares? Your mom's going to lose her house because you posted a property bond. Uh, that's probably going to change your your thought process about whether you're going to go to court or not. And so 
those are just some of my thoughts. Uh, but crowdsource bond, I, uh, as a pro, I mean, I, I would hope as a community we, that wouldn't be something that we would we would support. All right. Any thoughts from you, Tony? Yeah, crowdsource fu- bond funding should be illegal. Um, it is one of the worst ideas for a criminal justice system mm. possibly ever. Um, it's just it's another symptom of a disease that's starting to affect the criminal justice system, and that's wokeness, where we don't want bad people to pay for what they've done because of some weak excuse about their upbringing or where they came from or something else. I don't care why you hurt somebody, why you killed somebody. You hurt them, you killed them, you need to pay. And uh, the one you're talking about where the fellow was freed uh, by crowdsourced bond funding and then shot that police officer in the throat, uh, he's going to have to have that uh, uh, voice box now because of all the damage that was done. If uh, the people who funded that bail or that bond uh, would have thought about what they were doing, uh, that guy, that police officer, would still be okay. And uh, once again, that is a Marion County thing, which uh, I don't know that we have that particular part of the uh, woke disease headed out this way. But I can tell you right now, the people of Henry County, they do, for the most part, respect the law. And they're not going to go for this. And the other problem with crowdsource bond funds is they're not coming from Marion County. They're coming from all over. Uh, you set up your little bond page and say, give me some money. Well, you get people in from California, Colorado, New York, people who it's none of their business getting into this. And my favorite was, I believe that the crowdsource uh, particular platform that was used in that case said, well, hey, I know something happened, but 75% of the people we bail out don't reoffend before they go to trial. It's like 75%, really? <laughs> That's a good number to you? It's clear that the other problem with this is they're not screening the people. They have people who they're bailing out who recidivism. Right. And that is a huge problem in our system right now, especially given the fact that you have overcrowded jails and you don't have a lot of incarceration options because of the state on the level six felonies. And that's where a lot of the cases are. Like Michael said, you've got uh, about uh, – what, five, six hundred uh, level six felonies every year. And we have to do something with those people and we can't put them all in jail. All right. Uh, the last the last item that I have in our program side, and you guys can obviously, we can we can talk as long as you all need to on other items that we haven't covered. Um, Michael, did I hear you say that we had two jail, two jury trials in Henry County last year? Yes, criminal. And that's. I assume that's because of COVID that the the number is less, or is that typical? Is it is two or three years? Or is that more? Like, I guess like no, that's the question. I, I would say that would that was low because of COVID. Okay, yeah. So what should what should the expectation be? I know I I got I, when I was a Rush County resident, I got a jury summons one time in my life. That was it. Uh, I've lived in Henry County as an adult for over fifteen years, and I've never never had the privilege of uh, coming down to hang out with y'all. Um, how often how often should this be happening? Should citizens that are listening, if they get in that situation, did I just unplug you with my foot? Maybe. It's very, yep, they did. That's all right. Uh, I, I was going to say, I'll, I'll, I'll I fix it. I'll fix it. Um, 
I want to piggyback on your question. Yeah, you, too. you jump on there and I'll plug Tony back. In. I guess. So maybe a, uh, it may not be a better question, but you, so if obviously you're both attorneys, so you guys go um, to these conventions and then depending, I, I guess like on how you approach things, like, is there a, I would imagine like there's like, Hey, per X amount of people, like there should be so many jury trials, like metrics like that. Is that a thing? Is that not a thing? Like, is that, I, I don't know. Like <laughs> to Jesse, me, it, Jesse's left brain. So analytical, is there a yeah. certain number that you're supposed to do to make yeah. sure you're doing your job? Yeah. Like to be yeah. like, am I, is our County like crazy? Are we like not crazy? Are we really crazy? Like yeah. there should be something to be like, Oh, like I, if I, if I was in your job, I'd be like, yeah, we're par for the course. Like we, we no, we live in a crazy County. Uh, or maybe like this is free coasting, easy money. Like I don't have to do much. Like I just want to know like, no, what Jesse. What it my is. brain works like yours. I like I love baseball. I love to look at the analytical stats about yeah. oh, Michael. That's not going to help you get elected. Yes. Saying your brain works like Jesse. I don't know how much you listen. You just, just lost just everything. The, just the oh, analytical part. Over. But congratulations, sir. <laughs> but just the analytical part. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, and. Uh, and no, there's no, there's no science uh, of this is what you should be doing. Uh, right. some, any standards you see, it's just something that people made up, just trying to come up with what they seem was going to say. Be appropriate. Be, I was going to say, I would imagine there's some sort of data scientist to be like, look, all right. Yeah. So based off of the uh, you know median income and blah blah blah, like you should have some sort of so many jury trials, and if not, then perhaps you might have like corrupt police or police that are pushing too hard, blah, blah, blah. Like you could come up with your own reasons, right? That's data science. Like you could come up with your own hypothesis of what's going on. And then you kind of tread test and, and I didn't know if like, those are like things that you guys see if you go to these um, conventions and to just like, to, I don't know. I I would think that like people are trying to be like pragmatic about approaching these subjects to be like, we don't always want to put people in jail and maybe that's wrong. Maybe I'm, I, again, I'm not in this field, but maybe they are like it, it, but it would be like, you know, like we all know there's pressure on County jails. So like what options you got, right. I'm sure like there's these conventions. Part of it is, Hey, here's some different programs. Like you could try to think or think about how how you're going to approach these problems. So I, that was my thing is like, is Henry County par for the course based off of our demographic? Are we Uh, wildly average? Yeah. Are we wildly average? (laughs) Are we wildly wild? Are we wildly not like, we're just cool. Like it's, you know, cause like in the streets, as air quotes for those listening, um, (laughs) You know, it's, you know, we're like one of the meth capitals of the world. That's what people talk all the time, which I don't know if it's necessarily true, but it's what, like, there's those jokes. So, like, how are we, you know, like, from your guys' perspective? So, go ahead, Michael. I would just say, anecdotally, talking to other prosecutors throughout the county when I go to these conferences, throughout the state when I go to these conferences, uh, we are, uh, as I the prosecutor's office reputation is, is a very good one mm-hmm. in Henry County. Uh, sometimes I, 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 you go to the conferences and you'll hear, well, we haven't had a jury trial in four years. Uh, and that's going to be dependent on, and that's why uh, the prosecutor and the prosecutor is going to set the tone for the office. And so that's why uh, you, you need someone who's not going to be afraid to go to trial. Right. Uh, but uh, to answer your question, uh, one of the things you have to do is that 
you're a, just a numbers person. Over fifteen hundred criminal trials. Uh, courts time. You have to look at you only get, you only have so much of the courts time. Right. Uh, fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred uh, criminal tr- criminal cases. cases. Criminal right. cases. I'm sorry. So what, I, it, I said trials. Because trial. but what I think what you're saying is that you don't case. have the bandwidth. If everybody yes. wanted to go to trial, you can't get fifteen hundred yes. through in a, in a right. year yes. in the county. And it, let's cut out all the misdemeanors. Let's cut out all the level six felonies. Even that's going to get you still down to three hundred or so. Okay. okay? And I'm, so and then I'm, that that and. At the maximum you would have is I, I, it going to be about 150. We have three courts. They set courts, tri- jury trials one day a week. So maybe 150 in a year. So you're just going to tell these other, all these other cases, well, we're not going to do anything else. Right. And we have to understand when we talk about the court system, and I know Tony briefly touched on this as well in reference to a different county, but the criminal, the, the criminal is just a small part of all the other things the court system does as well. And uh, th- there's also other things that d- demands on the court system. It's, it's just shocking to me that I guess in, in 1500 cases that only two got to the point where they wanted to go to jury trial. You know, if I, I know if I'm, if I'm trying to defend my, I don't know. It, it, it feels like a whole lot of people are pleading out Ver- yeah. it, versus, versus actually going, going the distance and saying, I am not taking that level six. Cause I don't believe in it. They just, they sign and they move on. Well, part of that is uh, we're blessed. We have great law enforcement officers. They do great work. They do great work on the road. They do great investigative work. Okay. And so that's going to be part of it. Okay. And also we talked about, we use other, we use other things for the misdemeanors in the, in the low, in the uh, lower level uh, felonies as well. And so we use other options such as the agreements to withhold prosecution. We talked about, uh, and we talked about uh, probation and community corrections. And so sometimes it's, I mean, to, to resolve cases, and I, this is just the reality to resolve cases. I have to know what I think each judge is. And I have to have a pretty good knowledge of what each judge is going to do. And I have to make sure it's probably to get an offer. It's got to be a little bit less maybe than what a, what a court would, what, what the court would do. Okay. And that's just going to, to resolve these, these cases we've talked about, uh, nonviolent offenses, drug possession, okay, uh, the lower level f- cases that we do. But you do need to be firm on the violent crimes. You need to be firm and you need to have your word mean something and stands for something. And so people know this is it. And, uh, and so I think that's trying to explain how, how the cases do get resolved. That right. many cases so, to uh, with that, Tony. So one of the things that you've got to understand when I came here in '04, and uh, Kit Crane was a prosecutor, and he was prosecutor until 2012, and he was very thorough on making sure that before a case was filed, the evidence was tight, and. For those first few years, trials were fairly rare, and uh, they were almost always uh, convictions because when the case was filed, it was ready to go to trial. Nothing was really left to chance any more than it, it is with realizing people are involved. We've kind of seen that maybe go away a little bit where there's a 
charge filed and a hope for a plea agreement. And then I've had a few cases dismissed at the last minute uh, before we went to trial because the evidence fell apart. And if a thorough investigation had been done, uh, it wouldn't have fallen apart. It wouldn't have been charged. Uh, and the other thing is the trial serves, <laughs> for lack of a better term, as a warning to a defendant of if you don't take this plea, it's going to get a whole lot worse. Um, I had a defendant here not too long ago reject a plea that was uh, four years of home detention, four years of probation. Uh, he wanted to take it to trial. He took it to trial, lost, ended up in prison for, I believe, 16 years. So you've got to have that that warning about um, if you choose to go to trial, this is what happens. You should take this plea. It will be better. But you also have to have the, your evidence tight, like I said. The other the other thing that's kind of floating around there is the you cannot offer weak plea agreements. And there's a perception in this community that that's what goes on. And there's no reason that, you know, out of 500 cases a year, uh, you would only have, you would have no uh, level six felony trials, I believe the last three or four years. Now, COVID was there for 18 months of it. But three or four years, somebody should have had a trial, and that's not what's happened. And uh, we need to be uh, stronger on our plea agreements, and we need to draw lines in the sand because cases. I had a case. I took it over in eighteen, and it didn't get resolved until this year. So, uh, and that's because we were dancing around a plea agreement. And uh, as prosecutor, I would just go to trial on something like that once the Drugs are identified as drugs, and I have my evidence ready to go. Uh, I would start objecting to continuances and say, we've got to get these people out. Because we've got a guy, I think he's been sitting over there for four years on a level two felony. And uh, in jail, that is. And all he's doing is taking up a bed that could go to somebody who we need to put there. <laughs> one, one more practical question before we go to final thoughts, Tony. For the folks that you're representing now as the defense attorney, and if you you change sides of the of the conversation. What yeah. happens? What mechanically? What happens for your your cases and your um, your clients? So your existing clients. If I have a client who has taken a uh, who's under a probation sentence or something like that, and they were to violate that, I would have to have a special prosecutor appointed. Um, I would have to have a special prosecutor appointed for any case that I uh, touched uh, where the facts that I may have learned in representing that person would um, play a waters, role. Yeah. Well, you just, it, you get, once again, it's the perception. It right. may not muddy the waters at all, but it would be the perception that it did. Right. Cause like right now I had a case last year where uh, she was charged with a possession crime, but she had an enhancement based upon a prior conviction. Well, judge crane was the, the prosecutor during that case. So we had to move out of his court, even though it's a yes or no question, there's still that perceived bias from the prior one. So it's just kind of being absolutely fair. And then typically uh, you would know uh, 
who to call to help you out because if they got into a situation where they needed a special prosecutor, they dump their case on you. Right. <laughs> it's kind of a trade, a bad trade, <laughs> like the Carson Wentz trade. Oh boy, which one? <laughs> hey, hey! All right, that's you, a that's a wonderful segue to uh, we producer are not Chris talking about that Carson Wentz trade. Which we one? Got, <laughs> he's he's the, one the, he's the Commanders shafted. fan in the room. I got shafted. <laughs> hey, my wife's a Commanders fan, so she feels your pain. Yeah, I got completely shafted in that trade. Um, but anyways, my last, my final thought is very simple. So I am 32 years old and I have never received a jury paperwork where I have to fill it out or anything with my previous last name while I lived in Henry County. So you, you, for those that are, that are new in the room or the, the, not the longtime audience members, you were, you were born as Chris Guffey, but you yes. took your wife's name and you're now Chris Staten. So Chris you're saying and that I when, live in Delaware County when, you, when you went from the Guffey family to the Staten family, all I of a sudden you're, they, they'll, they're willing to use you for jury trials. They're, they're willing to call me. They haven't called me yet, but they've like, Hey, you have to fill out your paperwork now. I'm just curious when does like the prosecutor, they go, Oh, look, that's a Guffey. I'm just marking them right off the list. <laughs> not even bringing them in the courtroom. Is that how this works? No, no, no. That's not how it works. They they use a few they use a few tools to uh, create the uh, jury list, but they they use a uh, driver's license and uh, voter rolls to create that list. And, and you just haven't been lucky enough. You weren't lucky enough to get chosen when you lived in Henry County. And I can tell you, I had a civil trial one time, and uh, it was in Judge Payton's court, and Judge Willis was in the jury list. And then I have gotten the uh, questionnaire that they sent out for quarterly before. And at the bottom it said, is there any other reason you should not be on a jury? I said, well, yeah, if as a practicing attorney, I wouldn't put somebody like me on a jury. (laughs) (laughs) It's very fair. And my wife says, well, I've never gotten a summons. And I said, do you really think any lawyer in this County would let you on a jury? (laughs) Man, that's difficult to know. I mean, you may be viewed as being impartial or, you know, ready, ready to go. Well-educated. Michael, you have any final thoughts for me? Any, any, any closing statements, any, um, I guess if, if folks want to volunteer for the campaign, if they want to help go to door to door, if they want to learn more, how do they, how do they get involved? Uh, you can, uh, you can find me on Facebook. It's under Michael J. Mahoney. Uh, you could be glad to have anyone look me up and it, find some information there to find out more about who, who I am and, uh, about my experience and about how I want to serve our County. Uh, I did want to say, I just want to thank you everyone for being here. Thanks for this opportunity. I'm really glad we had this opportunity to have a conversation about uh, future goals and uh, hopes for the prosecutor's office. Uh, We're going to have a new prosecutor January 1st, 2023. So it's been a great opportunity to to share what my hopes and visions are for that office. I really do appreciate it. I want to say, oh, one thing I've heard Level sixes, there's change in July 1st. We're going to be able to send some more level sixes to uh, the prison. Uh, but uh, I did want to say that. But I would just really appreciate any anyone's support, anyone's vote. Uh, just what an honor I've had and a privilege it has been to serve uh, Henry County for the past 20 years. I've, I've really, my favorite thing is being able to try to help people, try to help people, people who've been a victim of a crime, People who have uh, 
also people in other situations who I've been able to help, uh, even if they've been charged with a crime, by being held, holding them accountable for their crimes. And so I really look forward to the opportunity, and I would appreciate everyone's vote uh, to be the next prosecutor. Awesome. We appreciate uh, you hanging out with us for tonight and putting up with uh, – uh, we're the we're the biggest podcast game in town, but we're not the, we're not the most <laughs> polished in the state. I can guarantee it. Uh, Tony, uh, any anything from your side? Well, I would uh, like to reiterate uh, what Michael said. We both appreciate you having us on here, so we can discuss and kind of uh, make sure that some of the people who may not know us get to know us and understand what our philosophy is. Um, I want to be clear that uh, this particular election is a. Uh, is a job interview, and uh, I think we all saw that when a choice is made, uh, there may be a candidate who's a really nice guy uh, who people like, and there may be a candidate who's rough around the edges who uh, whose aggression is sometimes misconstrued as arrogance or uh, just general jerkery, which is something I hear from people all the time. <laughs> uh, but uh, we've seen what can happen when we choose the wrong person, and we can't let Henry County become like uh, Indianapolis, Chicago, or New York, where or San Francisco, where the wrong choice for a prosecuting attorney has led to some really bad consequences. And uh, I've made a reputation over the last 16 years for being aggressive for my clients, for being creative, for getting things done for them, and uh, helping them through difficult situations. And if you are unfortunate enough to be the victim of a crime or have someone in your family be the victim of a crime, I think this is really a choice of who would you feel would be better able to deliver justice uh, to you, and I believe I'm that person. Uh, You can find my campaign on Facebook. Uh, As I stated, I'm your neighbor. (laughs) My office is here. If you want to stop by and talk to me about anything, I've I've got time usually uh, to do that. Not going to get billed for that. Well, it depends on how long. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but like I said, my door is usually open and I can talk to anybody. I'm about trying to get free legal advice after you talk. <laughs> now, wait a minute. That's not what I meant. Uh, no, but anyway, uh, I'll bill him if you want free legal advice. You can. Please do. I don't, I don't contribute to this thing at all. I just, I put my ass in the chair and I just do my job. You don't contribute. So do you take away? Do you detract? Have you heard his commentary tonight? I was trying to be nice. <laughs> Today was good. Today's good. You know, it was a good day. I didn't have to use my word. AK as Ice Cube says. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, you can find me on Facebook <laughs> and I do appreciate uh, anybody's uh, vote. And uh, like I said, I really want to hear what people have to say, what they would like to see change and what they'd like me to do if I'm elected that office. So feel free to uh, contact me at my office. Thank you. Wonderful. Anything from you, Jesse? I, again, I'm, I'm looking for free legal advice. Um, interpretation of law. Interpretation of law. I want some interpretation of law. I will give you the free legal advice I give everybody. What's that? Don't break, break the, the law. law. Yeah. Well, this is, this is why I'm bringing this up, because I want to make sure I'm not breaking the law. <laughs> uh, and I, I work downtown. And uh, that is not breaking the law. <laughs> yeah, I work so, downtown, and I may or may not uh, not cross at every intersection that is an intersection. So, and the topics of jaywalking. I don't do a good Barney Fife impersonation, so I can't help you. Indiana Code nine twenty one seventeen two says walk, and this is in quotes walk, and don't walk signals. 
Uh, whenever special pedestrians control signals exhibiting the words walk or don't walk are in place, the signals must indicate as follow. Uh, flashing or steady walk means a pedestrian is facing blah, blah, blah. Steady walk means a pedestrian may not start to cross the roadway, blah, blah, blah. Flashing don't walk means this. And then the kind of, the, you know, the code kind of just stops. Duty to obey means a pedestrian shall obey these instructions of an official traffic control device specifically applicable to the pedestrian unless otherwise directed by police officer. Um, so my question is, if I if so, no traffic signals have the words "walk" or "don't walk" anymore. They are pictures of people and hands. Would you guys defend me in a jaywalking case? Well, he's I'd take that to I take that to the Supreme. We, court. Can we take it to court? Yeah, I mean, we could do Jesse, it to court. Jesse, this <laughs> is your grand opportunity for a jury trial. <laughs> I'm just like you guys want to take it. To, you guys want more jury trials? I'm ready to go. I'm ready. I'm locked and loaded. I'm like, let's go. Let's go. I want to win this. I want the state to be punished kind for, of, for, for its the, aggression. Kind well, of going no, back. A terrible written, it's a terribly written law. But going it's a back to that written, whole yes. judicial resources thing, if they started arresting people for jaywalking, they'd have to house us in <laughs> army barracks somewhere. I do it too. Yeah. yeah I just, so I, and I only bring that up because I, I've, uh, when I worked with a guy who was from Utah. And he was a contractor for the company I worked for. And he's like, dude, everybody jaywalks around here. I was like, yeah. is that a thing? <laughs> like, I didn't know like other states didn't They teach have you how to do it at Purdue and IU. It's, yes. it's, it's, a, it's a cool yeah. part of the- So he was, but he was, he's from Utah. He's like, dude, we don't have like jaywalkers. I was like, so everyone walks all the way to an intersection and crosses. He's like, absolutely. I go, that's insane. So, so when I was yeah. up at Purdue at Grant street and 26, when the light changed, just a, crush of people crossed 26 and it, it was probably a 10th of a mile people just jaywalking. And I have the conspiracy theory that the reason they made that a two way street was to stop people from doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I go downtown Indianapolis with my wife who graduated from IU Bloomington and her complete disregard for any sort of uh, safety when it pedestrian safety as a walker is is wild and insane to me, and I think she learned it all at IU Bloomington. I go downtown, and she's she's four <laughs> steps ahead of me. She's she's already got it crossed, and she's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm just trying to live." I don't yeah, know. you don't follow the signals, and you don't need to because there there's no law against it. <laughs> and I my I duty it's my just duty, survival instinct. My Jesse. duty. Well, I, I, so no, I mean, there's there's something right. Like I left a. So this is this is so is weird. That a current version of the code. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I I if you want to work with me to change this. <laughs> I would. Part of my life is to be like, just I, I, I want to. I want to get victories. pulled over for it. I want to get pulled over for it and take it to court, just to like, not just to be a dick, but like literally just be like, guys, why did you write it so stupidly? Why did you write it with quotes and the it, with the words walk like, when it was the written, interpretation is. But- the signal says walk when, and don't walk. When it was written, they were probably on horses, and it was a mechanical no, no, change. No, 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 no. They used to say walk and don't walk, and that's what they wrote the law towards. But didn't you have the District Fifty Four people? That's more for them to change. I, I, well, I think even in Newcastle, they have they don't have don't walk and walk. <laughs> so anyway, my life, one of my life goals. I don't have many, but this is one. Is to get this this uh, uh, law nullified and just removed, expunged, get whatever the word is. I don't know, but or at least get it rewritten because I'm like this is stupid. And so I walk in front of cops and I'm like, please just take me with you. I am here. I can't wait to take as, this to trial. As, and none of them want to do it. So I don't know. I was the 
campaign manager for Rex Bell when he ran for governor in 2016, and he used to say all the time, "There's a there's a difference between a, a between a law and a great idea." Yeah, and sometimes I, things shouldn't be laws that are just great <laughs> but ideas. Just when, again, it's it's weird because most laws are very vague. This one is like walk. And don't walk. And I'm like, how long why would been, you write How that? long have you been saving this? How long has this been bottled up in you? I've talked to at least five attorneys. But I, so, here's, so here's a better part. On Tinder, a girl I, a girl I match with. On Tinder, a girl. Hold up. Listen, on Tinder. I don't know why you're single. This is, I, we have the in some with some comedy. So on Tinder, one of the girls was an attorney. And my opening statement was, so Indiana Code dash nine dash thing. I want to know. I was like, would you defend me in court? Like they, that was like, it. Unmatched. <laughs> she there, did immediately <laughs> gone. There clever. are opening statements on Tinder. <laughs> oh yeah, you have to find some way to be like clever and witty and funny. And like I thought it was funny, especially as an attorney. I'm like, look, I'm, I'm trying to combat with you. Like I want to do some mental sparring with you and like talk I'm, about Indiana Code for a little bit. Like get down and dirty in Indiana Code. Oh my god, you Not made the happen. correct site, which sometimes a lot of attorneys don't even do. Oh so yeah, that's, I, yeah, that was impressive in and of itself. Yeah, so it's you know and. Yeah, unmatched immediately. So she was either under, she was like, oh, this guy's going to be too much. I think that's what she said. <laughs> she's probably like, this guy's just trying to get free legal. <laughs> she's going to send you a Venmo request to yeah. answer your call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will leave with uh, Craig DeCosta. The, uh, the, he's, he's now a defense attorney, the former prosecutor. His, his free legal advice, because Tony gave his, his, his says, as a defense attorney, my free legal advice is don't talk to cops. That's, that's, that's also, good, just good legal advice. All right. Uh, thank you guys very much. We appreciate you spending your time. I know it's we don't do this a lot as a community and having conversations and coming on a podcast is a unique challenge of running for office. But I thank you both very much for running and giving the people a chance to, to hear from you. Uh, and as a four-time failed candidate myself, thank you for putting your name on the ballot and giving the people uh, – a, as a third time failed candidate, thank you also. <laughs> yeah, We've, and Chris, well, you thank you. Yep, yep. As a as a one time. <laughs> <laughs> We've been down this road before. Thanks for hanging out with a bunch of losers. That's <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you guys very much. We will see uh, see this audience again next week. Dakota and Zach should be back, and I think we're talking to the Northern District Commissioner candidates. So uh, Joey Cooper and Joe Wiley. That's next week's show. Thank you. <laughs>